What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast, the show for all things real food and the processes that bring it to the table. As always, I'm your host, Paul D. Wieland, and this week I have another really exciting podcast for you guys. This is a conversation with Marty Kendall. Marty is the man when it comes to learning about how to eat for nutrient density, which is something I've been really wanting to learn more about because I think, you know, if we start prioritizing nutrients in our food, that's a path forward to becoming a healthier individual. Now, Marty currently runs the popular blog, OptimizingNutrition.com, and he's about to release an amazing book called Keto Lies that he sent me and let me, you know, look through to prepare for this interview. But before we get into this episode, I have some really, really exciting news. The Year of Plenty podcast is having its very first giveaway. You guys have been giving this podcast an overwhelming amount of support for which I'm very, very grateful for. So in order to give back the love you've been giving the podcast, we will be giving away a hand-forged Damascus steel kitchen cleaver. You heard that right. This cleaver has a $100 value and will be an amazing addition to any kitchen knife arsenal. It's absolutely perfect for slicing and mincing meats and chopping basically any vegetable, you know, especially when it comes to those larger ingredients. And let me tell you, it's Damascus steel, so the pattern on it is just absolutely beautiful. The grip on it is rosewood, so it looks really, really nice, and it comes with a high-quality leather sheath. So if you're a listener of this podcast and you want a chance to win this hand-forged cleaver, all you have to do is send me a message via Instagram, Twitter, or email for more details on how to enter the giveaway. My Instagram is at poldywieland. P-O-L-D-I-W-I-E-L-A-N-D, all one word. The Twitter handle is at The Year of Plenty. If you don't have social media, that's totally fine too. Just send an email to theyearofplenty at gmail.com. Once we receive your message, you will get more details on how to enter the giveaway and get a chance to win this beast cleaver. Okay, now that you know about the giveaway, I just want to give you a quick overview of this episode and talk about some of the topics Marty and I discussed. So first, we get into Marty's journey and why he started OptimizingNutrition.com. Then we dive deep into what it means to eat for nutrient density. We also go over some of the you know main categories of nutrients, so you'll have a little primer on that so that you can understand nutrients better. We also talk about how seeking out nutrient-dense foods can help us reach a state of satiety and why that is beneficial. Then Marty shares how nutrient density is measured in the first place and what nutrients we like as a society generally need more of. At the end, we get into some of the steps you can take to start eating this way. So that's really important. Definitely stick around for that one. And then finally, we talk a little bit about fasting because Marty has been doing some research on that and he talks about it in his book. And I was really curious about how we can optimize our fasts by focusing on high nutrient refeeds. So yeah, lots of exciting and valuable information in this episode. And it was such a treat to have Marty on the podcast because I've you know been following his stuff for so long and I'm a big fan. So I'm so excited to share this awesome conversation with all of you. As always, this is the Year of Plenty podcast. If you enjoy it, smash that subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen. Make sure to leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. That's one of the best ways to grow the show. Also, you can support it by making a small donation on Patreon with the link in the podcast description. 
If you don't know, Patreon is a service that allows you to help me create the show with donations as little as $2 a month. It's all based in the patronage system that was popular during ancient times. Back then, kings and queens alike used the patronage system to take creatives under their wing and support them in exchange for value. So if you do get value from this episode, consider sharing it. Otherwise, simply connect with me on Instagram at poldiwieland, P-O-L-D-I-W-I-E-L-A-N-D. All right, that's it. Thank you for sticking around for the intro, and don't forget about the awesome giveaway we're doing. Let's get started. Get ready to learn from Marty Kendall. Marty Kendall, what's up, man? Thank you for coming on the show. I am very excited to talk to you today. Uh, it, I've been really been looking forward to this chat, let me tell you. Yeah, real honor, and I'm uh, yeah, looking forward to a challenging and very interesting discussion with you today. <laughs> I, I mean, you've had much, much more challenging discussions, and I must, <laughs> I've been kind of going down a rabbit hole with all your uh, lectures online on YouTube uh, for Low Carb USA and whatnot. Those are awesome. And you've been showing up for those several, like year after year, right? Yeah, it was a great opportunity to be part of those and launch this little side hobby that's become a bit of a, an obsession, a rabbit hole. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a second. But I found your work uh, from the book Sacred Cow by Rob Wolf and Diana oh. Rogers, and they have this whole chapter on how to eat like a nutrivore, I believe it's called. Yeah. Yeah. And and um, they mentioned your name and your work. I'm like, oh man, this is right down my alley because my whole philosophy has always been like eat real simple foods. But now I'm adding, you know, but focus on those with nutrients onto that. So, mm. so yeah, that's honor to be mentioned in the books. And um, Robin and Diana, big influences and and good friends and great supporters. So yeah, it's good to be a part of the the book development. Yeah, they're they're awesome, and I'm happy for the work that they're doing. But uh, before we get into all the details about what you do, uh, I'd love to hear about your journey, you know, how you got started because you're not or you didn't start out in the nutrition space, right? No, no, I sort of fell into it or married into it in a way. My wife, Monica, is a type 1 diabetic and started digging into all this when we started to think about having kids and trying to stabilize her blood sugars and it's just sort of snowballed since then and trying to look initially, like you said, at low carb and optimizing insulin and blood sugars and then i said you know foods that have the lowest insulin and blood sugar response also have a very poor nutrient density so let's look at that and then similar to you trying to lift weights and get strong but not too fat and uh how do we how do we dial in satiety and and it's ended up being a bit of a multi-criteria analysis coming from an engineering background to try and smash all those things together to optimize nutritional choices for different people with different goals why is it always to engineers i had uh brian sanders on the podcast too <laughs> and he's also an engineer <laughs> i suppose we get we get angry at uh you know the frustration of i suppose I'm, I'm frustrated that my wife has had such poor dietary advice that's led her to 20 years of less than optimal health so yeah if you can see the way you want to share it if once you find something you want to get it out there so for you, it was mainly uh, what your wife was facing that got you deeply interested. And then yeah. you kind of, you started this blog, right? Optimizing Nutrition. Yep. And, uh, yeah, five years ago. And they, that, that's how you really went down the rabbit hole, huh? 
Yeah, I just kept sharing my thoughts on that and got feedback and questions and you're on social media and having arguments with people and going, hey, I can look at the data to try and answer those questions for myself and just kept digging. Yeah, and it's a really great blog. I mean, you go in detail. You also have like cookbooks on there that I might have to get one and try out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 the recipe books that we um, yeah started obviously numbers and graphs and everything is not everybody's cup of tea so it's like how do we how do we simplify this to show what it looks like and in pictures and show people and it just looks like real whole food that's quite simple and and vibrant and colorful and tasty so hopefully that'll start a movement towards nutrient density and nutritional optimization um, get the ball rolling a little bit more well that's a big thing right like that's one thing i'm trying to do with this podcast too is more so get people to think about their food is like the first step right and uh, there's many ways to do that but then also learning how to cook and mm. that that's where the cookbooks come in i mean you need mm. that for sure so i think that's really really great that you made those mm. so there's a lot of debate you know over what the best diet is and there's so many i feel like sides in the nutrition world that It, it overwhelms me, honestly. Uh, personally, I, I told you at the beginning before we started recording, like I have been eating a low-carb, sometimes keto diet for about six years now, and it's worked really well for me. For me, it was mostly because of the energy dips that I was experiencing, and, and that definitely helped hugely because I, I would start out my day with um, like these shakes that I would make over a thousand calories, you know, I don't even know how many grams of carbs in there, but, um, you know, I thought I had to do that to gain muscle. And, um, honestly, I haven't lost much since I went, you know, low carb and, and, uh, I have kind of sustained what I, what I wanted to. So, but I think a good place to start out, uh, is to kind of talk about this overarching concept I got from your book, your new book called Keto Lies. And, uh, uh it's called Optimal Metabolic Health. And I know that eating for nutrient density and, you know, that kind of aspect of the, of that plays a big part, but can you just briefly describe what optimal metabolic health is? Yeah. Um, I think it's fundamental to all the conditions and challenges and, and the biggest diseases we're facing in our Western modern community, not just Western, it's the whole world. Everybody exposed to modern engineered hyperpalatable processed food is that it's just designed to enable us to eat more and um, buy more and be cheap and hyperpalatable. So um, we end up with a condition of energy toxicity. We talk about, you know, insulin resistance and diabetes and cancer and heart disease and all these things, but they're fundamentally related back to largely just having too much energy on board because it's so easy to eat these foods that are designed to make us eat more of them. So um, it's primarily a condition of excess energy, excess growth. Um, nutrient density is definitely a part of it, but uh, metabolic health is just having normal blood sugars, normal BMI, normal level of body fat, uh, normal waist to height ratio. And once you dial those things in, so many other things just fall into place once that comes into play. Well, and I, I don't think many people, you know, are aware that those numbers might be totally out of whack for them. So, mm. you know, my kind of follow-up question to that was, you know, why should we even care as a society? Why should we care about food? Why oh, should wow. we care about eating for nutrients? 
are there maybe a ton of people that are nutrient deficient, maybe are even growing food that has the right nutrients? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, wow. So many questions. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't realize it because it's become normalized that we're just more and more unhealthy. Blood sugars are really elevated. Um, and that just that condition of energy toxicity leads to all those conditions that are degrading our health. But I think, you know, productivity, quality of life, and long term, the, the, the cost of that on our medical system is just skyrocketing and the diabetes epidemic is set to bankrupt western civilizations so i think that's really critical is that um, we need to get off that pathway to um to a situation where we can't afford to to be well uh, we can't afford emergency health care and we've got to intervene earlier to to get off that roller coaster and For the people who want to be able to do it, I think there should be a, a clear, defined solution. It's not just one diet. It's not you know a named diet, but here's the, the fundamental process um, of how you get there to optimize your metabolic health, dial in nutrient density, improve satiety, and then so many other health things work out. So what I'm getting from you is that the big goal is this optimal metabolic health, and diet and food definitely plays a role in this. Uh, so much as well as exercise to a degree but what you eat is so critical to how much you eat and, and what you weigh and all those other things and how you think and how you feel and it's just fundamentally what you what you put in your mouth is such a big player well and then you know with my question why should society care well from what i've been learning is there's a huge number of people in the western world that are nutrient deficient and they don't even know it mm. Yeah, um, I suppose we only talk about nutrient deficiencies a lot of the time in for, you know, uh, poverty-stricken countries where they can't get a lot of animal products or good quality food and they're deficient in iron or vitamin A and, and B12 and omega-3 and those sorts of things. And that's where you see frank nutrient deficiencies. But the rest of the world has, you know, we're, we're overfed and undernourished at the same time. And those things interplay. The quality of your food affects how much you eat. And uh, we're eating way more calories than we were before and getting potentially a lot less micronutrient density in there at the same time, which is so critical to our energy levels, mitochondrial health, energy production, how we feel, how we feel about ourselves. It's all just intertwined there. So to, uh, to have a solution to move towards optimal nutrition and improve metabolic health is just so fundamental. So it is. So you think that part of the reason people are nutrient deficient these days is that they're just not eating the right foods and that they're eating way too much of those wrong foods, I guess? Yeah, it's just a modern food system that um, 100 years ago we worked out how to extract uh, vegetable oils, plant-based oils, and they've just been on the rise for the last century. And then, uh, you know, in after the second world war and the great depression um, they realized that calories energy was going to be harder to get so they ch changed a lot of the agricultural policies to get big or get out and then you've got big agriculture just optimized to make food very quickly very cheaply um, with no consideration of, of the nutrients that that food contains so food is just 
plentiful um, designed to be super easy to overeat and uh, that combination of fat and carbs together that's grown up that just drives our overstimulation of appetite where we you know people say it's a personal responsibility thing you, you know you just need to eat less calories but when we're surrounded by these foods that uh, are designed to make us overeat them it's it's really hard for the, the mere mortal to to turn off that signal yeah. and just eat less it's just pretty much impossible if all you've got is donuts and doritos and cheerios around you you're just gonna keep eating those foods well not even just that i mean i'm amazed by how many people reach out to me and and, and tell me you know after listening to some of your stuff i started reading the new uh, the food labels and i have had no idea that some of the foods i was eating had all these added sugars or added uh, vegetable mm -hmm. or industrial seed oils as i like to call them so it's it, it's really hidden in everything basically and in, in the vast majority of the foods out there and it's become just normal what what everybody eats and it's normalized and uh yeah but basically any food that contains uh you look at the ingredients and it's a combination of refined refined industrial seed oils refined sugars and refined grains and that then you throw a bunch of flavors and colors to make it look like it's nutritious then uh you know that that's the food you want to avoid because it's engineered to make you eat more and we can but we can understand that by understanding what they've done we can reverse engineer it to um, improve nutrient density improve satiety to help you not be um, preparing for winter all the time mm, i like that well yeah I, I think there was a in one of your blog posts or might have been in your book that i was reading there was a a quote some statistics that in 2010 62 percent of the energy consumed by americans came from added fats or fat mm. oil fats and oils which was 23 percent mm. together then flowers and cereals 23 percent added sugar is 15 percent so mm. those are you know really food sources that are inferior in macronutrients but more than 50 percent of our energy comes from them that's kind of crazy to just think about yeah, if you look at over the last 50 years, how our food system has changed, there's so much debate over, you know, saturated fat, meat, and, you know, should we should go plant-based and whatever. But if you look at what's increased, it's the refined um, vegetable, industrial vegetable oils, seed oils, and the, 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 the refined grains together have just exploded to an extra thousand calories available per person per day and it's just that's that's just our food system that's what's changed that's what's the the smoking gun that nobody's really talking about while we're all bicking over plant-based versus carnivore at, at the fringes so well just because we we have brought up you know carbs bad um or refined carbs bad and these refined seed oils are bad uh, i haven't really touched too much on the podcast exactly why the seed oils are becoming or are like in the spotlight right now you know i feel like two three years ago it was mostly the refined carbs now every people are catching up with the seed oils what are your thoughts on why those are such an issue um fundamentally they're just in everything they're cheap and and the food manufacturers love to sell them to us and we get this massive dopamine hit from this um energy dense food i think that's fundamentally what the the first point that you've got to accept if you want to dig down the rabbit hole you can say that um omega-6 oils provide a, a, a ego 
cannabinoid effect on your brain and, and drive dopamine more and um, they can actually, you can gain more fat before you become insulin resistant and there's different subtleties that you can discuss of why they're different and why one's better than the other. But I think fundamentally you have to go back and say they're just cheap to produce. You add colours, flavourings and put them in everything and, uh, you know, food manufacturers love to sell them to us. And I think that's fundamentally the issue that uh, it's just easy energy that uh, drives overeating. Yeah, and then I I've heard that they're also highly inflammatory. That's one one issue, and yeah, like you said, the whole of them being super refined, for sure. Mm. That's that's another another big issue. But uh, if we, I did have a well, I can show the chart later. I did have a chart on that, but I don't think we need to really go over it because we we talked about it quite in detail now. But let's get to the big meat and potatoes of your work. You know. I probably shouldn't be you. Oh, I guess potatoes are fine to eat, right? <laughs> potatoes are high satiety. <laughs> yeah, high satiety, exactly. Uh, the highest, but we'll probably get to that. Um, so nutrient density and satiety, that's like what you really focused on for a lot of, for a lot of your uh, contributions to the nutrition mm. world. Uh, and, the, and the big benefit kind of seems to be that focusing on nutrients can help us get to a point of satiety. So maybe we should define what nutrient density is and what satiety is so that the listeners can get a better idea of it um so firstly satiety is basically you know foods that make you feel full and keep you feeling full for longer and you're not thinking about food in half an hour and you don't keep eating them on an unlimited basis like you would a, a donut or a dorito um, they're high satiety foods versus those low satiety foods. So high satiety foods enable you to control your appetite without having to track everything and endure hunger on a continual basis. Um, nutrient density, um, the nutrients, you've got um, vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids and amino acids, and they basically nutrient density is um, nutrients per calorie. So I've done a lot of work to try and build on previous really fantastic work to um, try and quantify that so we can then you know move past the, the belief-based nutritional system to have a quantitative basis for discussing what food is more beneficial for you than another. Um, so yeah, we can then quantify nutrient density in terms of does it provide all the nutrients you need without having to consume excess calories so we can dig into that more if you want to yeah yeah well well i think we'll get into that in a sec here um but yeah nutrient density basically how many nutrients do we get per calorie of food and then satiety is the whole idea of you know us reaching a point of hunger right so that we don't overeat and the the whole idea like to link it back to metabolic health right is from what I understand is that we eat for nutrient density, we eat these high nutrient dense foods, we reach a point of satiety, we don't overeat, we don't get all this excess caloric energy that we've been getting over the last 50 years or that we've mm. been getting way too much of. And mm. in turn, we get leaner and achieve a better metabolic mm. health. Is that kind of a good rundown of it? Yeah, definitely. You need, uh, you need, essential nutrients you need enough essential nutrients you need enough energy and basically what we're trying to do is get the nutrients you need without excess energy and if you need to lose 
body weight, then you want to have a, a high nutrient density so you can get the nutrients you need without or with less calories. But you know, if you're really active, then you can dial that back down either way, and, and that will lower your satiety so you can eat more food and yeah, support that activity. So, what happens? Like if nutrient density declines in the food that we eat, how do we react to like a lack of nutrients in food? Yeah, we've done a whole bunch of analysis of um, half a million days of my fitness pal data and 90,000 days of people using nutrient optimizer and found that, you know, there's different responses to macronutrients and basically protein percentage has the highest correlation with satiety. But at the same time, all the other micronutrients like potassium, sodium, all the vitamins, there's a similar sort of relationship where we keep on craving nutrients to the point that um, we get enough and then our appetite stabilizes. So all of, if you don't get enough sodium, you crave the sodium and, and salt tastes amazing. But if you get too much salt on your food, it tastes overly salty once you've got enough in your food. And you can think of that for all the essential nutrients basically we've i thought somebody needed to quantify it and nobody had done it so uh, i found the data and did it so yeah that's great and i do have a chart here that i was going to show along to this question so this is like a big one i've seen you go over in a couple of videos and uh do you think you can touch on on this chart a bit yeah yeah, yeah. um it brings everything together in, in one uh chart but up the top right you've got um, things like watercress, asparagus, coriander, these, you know, non-starchy vegetables, but in terms of nutrients per calorie, they're very, very high. Just to interrupt um, you real quick for the audio yep. listeners. So on one on, on the y-axis, we have nutrient density and the x-axis, we have satiety. And basically, you've listed out or plotted a bunch mm. of foods based on their relation between nutrient density and satiety, right? And top right yeah. is high satiety high nutrient density and the bottom left is low nutrient density and satiety yeah so i suppose if you wanted to start eating the most nutrient dense foods you could live on watercress and asparagus but at the same time be very 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 hard to get enough energy for that and yeah let me probably load trying to do that so i'm a i'm a forager and i go after watercress every year and i don't think i could eat that much of it it's a strong tasting strong tasting yeah. plant and that that that's definitely the case too. Is these really nutrient dense foods are very full of flavor in different ways, and maybe even bitter. And so we can't eat unlimited amounts of that. So then we move back down, and we've got seafood, and with the lobster, crab, and and uh, scallops, and those sorts of really amazing nutrient dense seafoods that uh, contain more energy. And if you need two thousand calories a day, you could probably consume nearly that in in, in your lobster but you may not be able to afford it so you keep on moving down you've got you know, your beef and your um, animal-based foods which aren't necessarily as nutritious as the uh the, the, the really rare and uh, caviar but you can't nobody can afford to live on that but what you see down the bottom left the common element is those refined grains that are very 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 nutrient poor and also new uh, low satiety so you're gonna basically binge those foods and overeat them so uh yeah if, if you want to dial up your nutrient density you sort of just want to move to the top right and that'll improve your satiety and there's a really as you can see on the chart there's a really amazing correlation between nutrient density and satiety yeah 
You know what surprised me in this chart is the egg yolk. I always hear that the egg yolk is super nutrient dense. And it, it does. I mean, it is pretty high on the nutrient density yeah. side of things, but not really the satiety here. Yeah, you, you've probably been hanging out in the um, low-carb gang. But, uh, yeah, de- egg yolk definitely has a, a good chunk of choline and, and vitamin A, but at the same time it's got a lot of energy and um not necessarily all the nutrients that are harder to find that potentially that the asparagus and watercress. And, and that's probably something to point out is that um, once you've got plenty of a certain nutrient, you don't get bonus points in the nutrient density score by getting more choline and more vitamin A and more B B12. When you've already got plenty, you then it then pushes you to seek out those harder to find nutrients that you're not currently getting in your diet. So whether you're a plant-based or animal-based or whatever, it, it drives you to seek out those harder-to-find nutrients in if you want to stick to your dietary um, regime, belief system, whatever you want to call it, um, you can then find out where those nutrients are contained in that group of foods. But ideally, most people seem to get a better nutrient density score when where they're omnivorous and can choose from all the available foods but they choose based on nutrient density and satiety yeah you know also here on your perch seems to be really high which is for people living in the midwest here ice fishing right now Uh, i've been catching a lot of perch so i feel like if you're a forager fisherman and hunter you're 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 doing pretty well But, but, but if you're uh, constrained to the center of your standard supermarket, you're down the bottom left and in a lot of trouble. Yeah, exactly. That is very true. All right, so let's stop sharing this. Very paleo thought that. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, well, how about we get into like a little nutrient primer? Because we've been throwing around some words that I don't know if everyone understands, you know, essential nutrients versus non-essential nutrients. So yeah, maybe we start with that. What are essential, what are non-essential nutrients? And then maybe we can go into the micro versus macronutrients. Yeah, yeah. Um, so essential nutrients are the ones that your body can't make. There are like some animals can make vitamin C, but we've lost the ability to do it. So um, there's a whole bunch of nutrients that are classed as essential just because we have to get them from food. Some are conditionally essential. Then you've got all the, you know, non-essential nutrients that may be beneficial that really we don't understand that much about. We've only been quantifying nutrition since I think around the Second World War when they tried to make sure that the rations for the, the soldiers had adequate nutrition in them and just to, you know, get by and not to thrive but to survive the war basically. So it was like how low can we get it while not killing our troops out in the battlefield, which would be a bad thing. But, um, yeah, then you've got all the, you know, tannins and phytonutrients and all these other things that we're, we're just starting to understand that are in our food, but uh, we don't really quantify a lot of the time. But, you know, my approach is that if you're getting whole foods that contain all the essential nutrients, you're typically going to be getting all those other little things that we don't understand yet that are potentially beneficial and uh yeah so and then macronutrients are the um carbs fats protein alcohol potentially exogenous ketones whatever you want to add in there but uh, they're, they're the big ones for, that contain the energy um that we typically think of but very few people really dig down and quantify the um 
the micronutrients and, and look at which ones they're getting enough of and which ones they need more of. And nobody's really looked at which foods contain the, the cluster of nutrients that you as a person need more of. So that's what we've tried to pursue and dig down that rabbit hole and provide a, a systematised approach to point out the selection of foods that would be optimal for you to move down towards optimal nutrition. Yeah, I remember in the bodybuilding days, the macros were my main focus back then. But it yeah, fits your macros, that's all that matters. Exactly, it doesn't fit your macros. And on um, the micronutrients, I mean, those are just, you know, vitamins, minerals, right, mostly. Mm. So I do have a screen share here the, of uh, the macronutrients that I thought was really cool that I think it was in your book even. Let's see. Let me share this quick here we go so i think this is pretty good for people to understand um because you know i i think food needs to be kind of understood from this this nutrient aspect and mm -hmm. so the, the more knowledge the better so we have the macronutrients you named alcohol ketones the exogenous ones then protein x well, they have x excess protein on this chart carbs and fat so those are the the big ones and in your book, you point out this idea of oxidative priority and uh, mm. the thermic effect. Uh, can you touch on those and, and why we should be aware of them? Yeah, uh, I suppose oxidative priority is the order in which your body wants to burn off the fuel. So we're always burning some combination of fuels in our body, but if you drink a whole lot of vodka, that's basically like rocket fuel, and your body says, hey, I've got no storage capacity for that whole bottle of vodka you just drunk and you're going to have to burn it off so you get you get hot and, and you shut down oxidation of carbs and fats while you burn off the the alcohol and similarly with ketones whether they're exogenous or endogenous generally if you've got endogenous ketones from burning your fat your carbs are going to be low so you're going to be burning off those high octane ketones um Protein is interesting um, if you have excess protein, and that's probably an interesting discussion, but um, if you've got protein beyond what your body can use for muscle protein synthesis and, and repair of your body, it'll want to burn that off. Um, so primarily, though, the protein you eat is used to rebuild, basically, right? Correct. And most people don't really eat excess protein just because it's so hard to overeat, which we might touch on later. Um so you don't really need to think of in terms of avoiding protein, and that's the subtlety of this. And then um, carbs, if uh, you've got glucose in your bloodstream, it'll need to be depleted before you can burn fat. So um, basically your, your, your body stacks up these fuels on top of each other. You can think of them all stacked up like a you know crude oil at the bottom and, and high-octane mm -hmm. jet fuel at the top. And you have to burn off the, the, the high octane before you can get to the crude oil, which is your body fat. So in terms of the way your body burns fuel, you need to it'll it'll burn off the higher octane, um, more combustible fuels at the top um, before it gets down to your body fat to burn through that. So So if you're eating a, a big pizza after a night out at the bar, it's probably and, and you're you're still you're first probably gonna utilize up all that alcohol before you even touch those car the carbs and fat yeah, for energy. Pretty huh? much. Pretty much. And then that's yeah, how most of that 
gets stored, then a lot of that energy gets stored because they got bur- your body burns off the alcohol first. It's kind of interesting to think about. Now, what about yeah. the, the thermic effect? Yeah, um, the, the 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 highest thermic effect food is is protein, um, and basically the the thermic effect is the amount of energy it takes or energy is lost from the food you eat in metabolizing that and converting it to to ATP in your body. So if if there's a complex um, natural protein, maybe a your game meat or your 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 wild caught perch that you just caught ice fishing, um, you're going to need to use a lot of energy to turn that into ATP because your body wants to primarily use that protein to repair your your muscles and create neurotransmitters and all the other amazing things it does with protein. So it doesn't really like to use protein as a fuel. Um, so it sort of says, you know, I've had enough of that once I've got enough and give me the carbs, fat, alcohol that'll give me that buzz and give me that quick hit that I can metabolize mm-hmm. into ATP quickly and store easily. So that's where that, um, uh, you know, protein leverage kicks in that once you get enough protein, you, you need enough protein. Um, once you get enough, your body says, no, I'm full, had plenty of protein, give me the donut, um, which will give me the carbs and fat together. I always hear that fat is like the cleanest burning fuel. Is this where, where that all plays in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's true. Um, fat will is easily converted to ATP. You're only losing 3 to 15% of the energy from from fat to convert it to to ATP. But at the same time, it's very, very easy to convert to body fat storage at the same time, even easier than carbohydrates. So it doesn't take much insulin or much effort for your body to go, yeah, I've, I've I'm, can you just hold up? I'm still burning through the alcohol, ketones, protein, and carbs. I'm just going to store the fat in your body. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's easy to store, easy to to convert to ATP. So the fact that fat is um, a super efficient fuel is not necessarily a good thing. Got it. Depending so, on what your goals are, of course. Yeah. So let me stop the share quickie again. What about measuring nutrient density? You touched on it a little bit. Um, you know, we do it in terms of satiety, right? But uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with the RDA, um, yep. which you can find on like all the food labels in the back. I never really understood how to read it. I always see the little cross and I think that's bad, but I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, are those RDA and those kind of measurements, are they any good? And then how have you chosen to measure nutrient yeah. density um yeah so the, the re- dietary recommended intake is like we talked about before developed for way back in in the 50s for soldiers to understand the minimum required to prevent diseases of deficiency in the short term and um bruce ames who's one of the most cited scientists who later in his career dug into nutrient density and nutrition um, talked about the the triage theory, where basically your body will prioritize nutrient density or nutrients from your diet for short term survival. And if you don't have enough overall in your in your diet, you can't really prioritize short term survival and longevity at the same time. So you're gonna you know potentially compromise functions of longevity, and you're just gonna try and get through the day. So you may feel okay now 
if uh, you're on a nutrient-poor diet, but you're not really able to do everything your body really, really wants to do with the nutrients that you're getting from your food because you don't have enough. So um, thinking in terms of aiming for more than the minimum is sort of like a greater factor of satiety. So in bridge design, we, you know, the, the foundations in a bridge that we don't really know what's going on below the ground. We, we don't want the bridge to fall down. So there's a, an absurdly high factor of satiety because you don't want to drive a truck across it one day and it falls over because you just aim for the minimum. So aiming for a higher nutrient density is like that higher safety factor. Um, yeah, so we analysed a bunch of, we've got a program called Nutrient Optimizer, which takes in data from Chronometer, which is a really good way to track your um, micronutrients and macronutrients. So everything else just looks at macros and chronometer actually dials in your micronutrients. So we took in that data and found that there's sort of a satiety curve for all the different nutrients. And, and a lot of them, there's a point where you get enough when your appetite settles down. Um, protein, you could just get you know, the higher percentage of protein, the, the greater satiety basically but um, some of the vitamins and uh, minerals, sodium, if you get more than five grams per 2,000 calories, your appetite goes, yeah, I've had enough sodium. And potassium, if you get more than seven grams per 2,000 calories, it goes, I can't, I've had enough potassium, I'll move on and focus on the other nutrients. So we're able to look at that optimal nutrient intake where that corresponds with greater satiety that's still available in your uh your diet so you don't have to start hammering supplements to get that and yeah definitely not an optimal way to get your nutrients ideally better to, to forage and fish if you can yeah and is that i i did take that the short test that you have online that kind of tells you what nutrients are missing but is there included or additionally to that is there like anything that tells you exactly how, like what nutrients you're getting from the food yeah you, you can do a um you can do blood tests and the like. Very few people do it, and you have to be really chronically deficient to ascertain that. But if you track your food for a few days and then in chronometer we've got a seven-day um, nutrient test that you can then feed your data into um, Nutrient Optimizer that will then give you a nutrient fingerprint like those charts that I shot you earlier, that you, then you can see, hey, which ones am I getting heaps of and which nutrients do I need to focus on more of and then which meals, which recipes, which foods will give you more of those nutrients that I'm currently struggling to get enough of. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Because that, that was kind of my question, you know, is is there a way to, to even uh, measure in a lab or something how much I'm, I'm, I'm missing in nutrients? But that probably also depends on like a day-to-day kind of, uh, yeah fluctuation yeah yeah and so, and like I, like I said if you're deficient in a certain nutrient on a lab test you're really really deficient because your body works really hard to recycle nutrients and make sure it's not massively deficient but for most people just dialing the nutrient density of their food quantitatively will help them get adequate nutrients for your body to do what it needs to do with those nutrients so yeah people go oh, yeah I did a blood test and I'm not deficient, but your body's working really hard to recycle those nutrients that it's not getting enough of. So much like I talked about a safety factor, if you want to add a safety factor to your diet, don't don't eat uh, 
the the, the refined the, you know, the cheapest thing you could eat is buy a two liter bottle of canola oil and drink that. And uh, that does but not that's, sound good. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not going to be optimal. So, and your your watercress and fish, fresh fished perch from the ice is is probably going to be on the on the on the other extreme. But uh, most people are probably living on the, the processed foods are going to be more down the, the, the bottom end. Yeah, I wonder how much, you know, if you took an average of how much uh, vegetable oils everyone ate during a day, how much that would translate to in a bottle. Mm. Uh, yeah. that'd be <laughs> it's scary to yeah. see. Yeah, right. More, more, than, more than we think, like the, the amount of energy that's coming from vegetable oils is is absurd in the food system yeah and there's a whole series of blogs on your website uh that talks talks about how you came up with the index and yeah. the score and all that if anyone wants to check that out uh, but you touched on the rda right and and that is kind of, that has some shortcomings yeah well some of them are based on actual clinical deficiency tests and some of them are based on looking at um this is what people typically eat on a Western diet and, and like vitamin E and a few other ma manganese and a few nutrients that just go, yeah, we don't have any testing that shows clinical deficiencies because they just don't, you know, there's not a lot of money to do that testing. There's not a lot of motivation to delve into nutrient density. There's no drug companies funding that and big food are busy selling you the, the other stuff and saying, look away, just buy our stuff. So, um, unfortunately, there's it, not a lot of, of, of hardcore. The, granted, they've done a fair bit to come up with the RDAs, but they're definitely the. They've got a very low safety factor on them. And do you want to do you want to risk that, or do you want to you know put people like yourself who want to look and feel and perform at the optimal, which end of the the, the optimum scale do you want to be? Yeah. I hope podcasts will change that, you know, that we get more people interested maybe even in, in funding <laughs> funding some of these studies. Maybe. That would be great. Right. Um, now, you know, we said we want to get leaner. We want to get that metabolic health and nutrient density can help us get there. So if I want to eat less and kind of achieve satiety consistently, what are some of the macro and micronutrients to focus on? And you, you touched on it a little bit, but yeah. it would be cool to dive deep into that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, analysis of both uh, MyFitnessPal data and neutron optimizer data indicated that by far protein percentage has the highest correlation with the amount we eat. So that's not necessarily eating more protein. You don't sit down to um, a bowl of butter to get your protein. You need to look at dialing back the, the fat and carbs in your diet and those foods that contain less fat and carbs and a higher percentage of protein drive um, greater satiety um, and the effect of that can be quite massive when we looked at fiber fiber has some positive effect on satiety but most people aren't eating enough fiber to get a massive benefit from that with you know um, i don't really focus on fiber as a as a nutrient you want to pursue because if you're getting a nutrient dense whole food diet you're going to be getting plenty of fiber without having to measure it or worry about it and if you're eating carnivore then you're getting heaps of protein then that's cool too um and both fat and carbs together 
well, fat and carbs separately have a negative impact on satiety. So I always heard just eat fat to satiety in the keto world. Yeah, that's what I literally, I was. that was one of my questions because from the beginning, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like fat I is the most satiating. <laughs> yeah, I, and and if you're not measuring your food uh, and not counting the calories you're eating and uh, drink a, a bulletproof coffee or eat a block of butter, then you're going to feel satiated very quickly, but you just took in 4,000 calories to do it. Yeah. And that's why you feel satiated because you just haven't had a whole lot of energy. And, and in terms of satiation per gram of food, fat would be the most satiating. But if you're looking at energy content of your food, then um, it's it's the worst so yeah don't don't eat fat to satiety been there done that um it doesn't end well yeah no i gotta say i i i like those bulletproof coffees i did them for a while but i was hungry a couple hours later again most of the time yeah or if you hammer 500 calories or a thousand calories of butter and mct oil well you might be on the toilet but um yeah that's another thing you you're you just took in a lot of energy so it's going to keep you satiated for long term and and in our analysis of two and a half thousand recipes the bulletproof coffee is at the bottom in terms of satiation and nutrient density per calories so um yeah so but but you did say is it the combo of carbs and fats we want to avoid because we don't want to overeat protein and not have any of those at all right yeah, you need to find, find that balance and the combination of fat and carbs together with low protein is, is basically your donut, your cookie, your milk, chocolate and all those things we consider as bad carbs, but they're really just these hyperpalatable foods that are very, very rare in nature and you, you, your breast milk and your acorns and nuts and those sort of things are the only thing in nature that are like that and they, you know, you, you, your breast milk is to make little things grow into big things very quickly and you acorns and nuts are available in autumn to help the little squirrels put away for winter and it sends a signal to your brain that winter's coming i need to binge i need to hoard i need to hoard fat on my body and uh to prepare to survive the winter that's coming but we're basically in this perpetual autumn with our food system that looks you know way worse than than milk and nuts could ever be there's nothing in nature that's quite like these hyperpalatable processed foods that you know you look at you look at over the the globe you've got high carb foods near the equator and low carb high protein foods near the poles and they change with seasons but now we've just optimized our diet for minimal satiety and uh this combo of fat and carbs together that just never occurred before and drive that signal of i need to binge need to eat more and, and that's why we can't stop eating these foods so and into all of this place, this hypothesis I've heard you talk about, the protein leverage hypothesis. Yep. Can you touch on that quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of guys, um, Simpson and Rubenheimer from University of Sydney, um, actually exchanging some email debates over the holidays with them. But um, they, they observed in nature that, that every animal eats, you know, whether they eat these leaves and these plants and this meat, they always make up a, a certain amount of their diet to get a certain amount of protein over time and it's just amazingly consistent. And when we eat foods that contain less 
protein, a lower percentage of protein, we tend to overconsume calories and vice versa. When we eat higher percentage protein foods, um, we tend to eat fewer calories because it's harder to get the energy, more satiety, etc. So that's the the protein leverage hypothesis, and they and I definitely agree. Uh, say you know the way to do it is just to incrementally step up that scale. So if you're eating a diet that's 13% protein, like the majority of society, let's try 15, let's try 20% and just keep ratcheting it up as required to get the results you want. And they did some interesting mouse studies a few years ago that looked at the extremes of low protein versus high protein from 5% protein to 60% protein. And they had to, you know, euthanize a bunch of mice um, when they were raised in a very, very low protein diet because they didn't make it through infancy. And but the, yeah, it all got very complex. And when I looked at the data they sent me, it was just very, very noisy. But um, but definitely, the what we do see is that uh, a higher protein percentage will lead to better mo- metabolic health. But there's no need. You just can't jump to sixty percent protein diet. You just need to dial it up just a little bit. Yeah, just with so many other things. Um, what about I mean that, but we also see something similar with micronutrients, right? Mm. Um, where, I mean, you touched on it earlier, sodium, potassium. But the more we eat of a certain micronutrient, the more we reach satiety. Yeah, is that? Yeah, and and the foods that contain all those nutrients together are, are more satiating. So it's not just one nutrient at a time; it's everything. So if you're already getting heaps of protein, then you need to start pursuing. Uh, um, potassium and magnesium and, and maybe vitamin C or whatever that might be missing from your super high protein diet. Yeah, that's huge. The whole idea of eating the whole foods in this, right? Mm. Yeah, and, and the whole foods that come in nature are always, they come packaged together with the nutrients you need. Yeah, absolutely. And a natural appetite is just incredible for helping us to seek out the right foods at the right time when we need it when it's not um when we don't have the volume of, of these hyperpalatable foods turned up to 110 um, if we take that noise out of the system where we normalize our appetite normalize our palate learn to taste what a real food tastes like and what good food really tastes like then we, we just naturally seek it out and we're just amazing animals that uh, are meant to hunt and gather i totally agree that's i mean I had to cut out all those foods, you know, not even having them at home, nothing. And obviously I'll, you know, have a cheat day every once in a while, uh, once in a while but I regret it immediately every time. So, yeah, you do, you stop seeking them out after a while. It's it's really yeah, interesting. And, and, and even my kids, when we take them out to have this, you know, treat or go out to eat, and it's really hard to find good food out. But even when we... You do, you pay a whole lot of money for it, and it's like, yeah, it just didn't taste as good as the the real food, the real fresh food that we can cook at home. So how much protein do we need to get enough? That's a big question some people might be asking themselves because I've heard, you know, throughout my bodybuilding days too, I've heard so many different numbers, and uh, it seems to fluctuate a little bit every time. Yeah, um, the answer is it depends, and it's hard to eat too much in terms of percentage protein um if if you're a really active bodybuilder and lifting 
really heavyweights all the time, your body will crave more protein naturally to repair itself. But if you're sedentary, you just will lose that appetite for protein. Um, but if you're just looking to, if you're currently sedentary and eating a junk food diet, then dialing up from 15 to 20 is a good start. And then 25, 30, 35, 40. And we see people getting up to 50% of their diet from protein and just getting amazing results in terms of ongoing weight loss and satiety. Um, but yeah, it's an incremental thing. In terms of um, amounts, 1.8 grams per kilo lean body mass seems to be a, a good rule of thumb to start with. If you're a massive energy deficit, it'll be hard to, to maintain that. If you're really active and trying to bulk up, you might end up doing more than that, but that seems to be plenty. What about, you know, some people are probably screaming because they've been told that protein is bad for you. You know, what is protein bad for us in certain amounts? Uh, it, no, basically. Um, you, you just, you, you want to be strong. You want to be resilient. I, I want to want to be uh, able to wipe my own bum and not need assistance for as long as possible. And, and as you get old, you get frail, you get decrepit. And if you don't build that reservoir of, lean muscle mass now at, you know however old you are i'm 44 and if you don't work on that now you're gonna decline and um yeah you don't want to fall over and break your hip and be in hospital and you know it that never ends well yeah i think i heard a statistic that 50 percent of people who break a bone and end up in hospital are, are dead a year later so it's um, pretty so of uh, infection from hospital or complications or all the drugs they end up on or you know it's yeah just... one one of my grandmothers always refuses to go to the hospital she's like i go there i'm, I'm not coming back <laughs> uh, it's a dangerous place to be sometimes yeah uh in your book keto lies you do talk about gluconeogenesis and this might be more interesting for the keto people that listen but uh, basically i mean it's still good to know uh, yeah. basically what happens is that our body can turn this protein into glucose, right? But, um, is that, you know, is that a reason to avoid protein if you are, uh, like on a keto diet or a low carb diet? Yeah. You, you, your body's always, um, gluconeogenesis uh, the way your liver turns the, the stored energy in your body into, it's making new glucose so your body's always churning out glucose into your body and so many of your your, your so much of your body needs glucose to survive um your red blood cells particularly and and most of your body thrives on some amount of glucose and but most people today have got so much fat built up in their body like we talked about before that they're not burning the fats so the glucose builds up in their bloodstream and they they have elevated blood glucose and diabetes and the like. So people try to avoid protein for fear of gluconeogenesis because they want to stabilize their blood sugars. But, um, I mean, if you're on a low-carb diet, a lot of the protein in your diet is going to be converted to glucose to supply that need for glucose. So, And then at that point, if you're you know just living on bulletproof coffees to get your protein, your body's going to go out in search of, of more energy that it can get um to get that protein because we talked about the protein leverage hypothesis so you're going to be chasing more protein and if you only get donuts or bulletproof coffee or whatever it is you, you're going to chew through 
a lot more food to get that nutrient you need. So really the way to do it is to give your body enough energy from protein, give it the protein it needs to do what it needs to do, and then you know if you're going to lose some to glucose, then maybe put a safety factor on your protein and maybe eat more protein and less fat and carbs rather than trying to avoid protein. Um, yeah, and if you're insulin sensitive a lot of people actually see the blood glucose fall after a high protein meal but if you're insulin resistant um, the liver is basically struggling to hold back that floodgate of excess energy stored in your body so it leaches into your bloodstream but that's not a reason to avoid protein because it's probably what your body needs the most well a lot of people are insulin resistant these days Mm. because of so many cheap foods that have that combination of refined Mm. fats and carbs right they mm. spike their blood sugar all the time that gets the insulin into the mm. bloodstream and that then carries the the glycogen to the muscles and after a while those those cells just almost become they just ignore the the insulin right is that like yeah. a simple way to explain it yeah, yeah 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 to some degree um like we talk about insulin being anabolic but i think through my type 1 diabetes headspace i finally learned got into my head that insulin is an anabolic hormone to a degree it can force energy into your cells and and grow your muscles to an extent but the main function of insulin um, is anti-catabolic so you'd understand this from being a bodybuilding nerd but um like if, if my wife stopped taking insulin all her stored energy would just leach into her bloodstream as, as glucose ketones and free fatty acids. And what the glucose does, uh, what the insulin, sorry, does is turn off the release of energy through the liver into your bloodstream. So insulin is sort of like the, the signal that raises the damn wall in your body while you've still got food coming in through your mouth. So, um, yeah, I think you need to keep in mind that you know people fear insulin like it's the plague and you know if i eat carbs it'll raise insulin but really that the the increase in insulin in your body from your diet even carbs is only maybe 50 percent of your daily insulin requirement for people on a normal western diet but it the, the 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 basal insulin that's holding back your stored energy is up to 80 or 90 percent for people on a low carb or ketogenic diet so the way to reduce insulin is to dial back your body fat which is satiety nutrient density and i sound like a broken record (laughs) you know i really want that message to get driven home so (laughs) it's good it's good to repeat it as many times as possible i think well what about if i'm eating for nutrient density i'm eating a lot of protein because protein also i don't i think we touched on this that a lot of these protein foods also come with a lot of micronutrients right from what you found in your data um so we'll lose weight but what if i want to sustain weight or just even gain weight is it just a, like is eating for nutrient density only going to lead me to losing weight or can i also sustain weight nicely on it is that just a play of the foods you're eating or the, the macronutrients at that point or yeah, yeah, yeah you need to just balance the nutrients and the energy and if you're trying to lose weight you need more nutrients with less energy if you're trying to gain weight you need you still need the nutrients but you can have more energy from those energy dense lower nutrient density foods while still getting that that nutrient density from from the high quality foods at the same time so you can if you're bulking or running triathlons and 
the like, then you can factor in more energy-dense carbs and fats and without as much concern for the amount of nutrients you're getting. But if you're um, Michael Phelps and doing 10,000 calories a day, you're going to have so many you're going to be consuming so much food that it's going to be very easy to get all the micronutrients you need. Um, but if you're, if you're an old lady trying to lose weight on 1,200 calories a day, then that nutrient density becomes so much more important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you can reach nutrient density, high levels of nutrient density if you just keep eating more, right? I mean, that's what we talked about at the beginning. But we're trying to figure out a way to minimize those calories so we don't get fat and mm. get the right nutrients. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about what nutrients we need more of. This is a chapter that, or a part of your book that I really liked. And uh, I know your answer is going to be, it depends on your goals, right? <laughs> it depends who you are and what you're eating. <laughs> yeah. But what are some of those nutrients, you know, that are the hardest to find in our current food system? Because I think those kind of probably apply to the vast majority of people. And I do have yeah. a, a chart for it that I can pull up. Yeah, yeah, show that up. I'm... Because, I, yeah, that one I thought was really valuable too. So I believe this is the right one. You tell me if it's not, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. so this one with looked at all the foods, the 8,000 foods in the USDA food nutrient database. And uh, at the top, you can see omega-3, vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin B1, K1, magnesium, selenium, B12, calcium are harder to find in our food system. Basically, we're not eating a lot of fish and often not getting a lot of um, organ meats which might contain vitamin A. So this is typical of all 8,000 foods available that, that, that are harder to find and phosphorus, sodium, um, iron, manganese, potassium tend to be down the bottom, sometimes easier to find in our diet. So you can think of it, you know, what am I getting plenty of versus what am I not getting enough of and on an individual basis based on my typical food intake or my dietary um, belief system, what am I getting more of but yeah it, it, you really need op, ideally need to dial down into a per person basis and that's why we've designed a system where you can track your food and say what is my current food system um, not getting enough of and what foods and meals will help me get more of those yeah i think the, yeah using the tool is definitely gonna be the main focus if you want to start eating this way which we'll talk about at the end but uh, the nutrient score on here, the fifty-seven um, yeah. percent. I see that a lot on your charts. Can, can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. So the fifty-seven percent is basically you'll see. If uh, sorry for the people who aren't watching the video, but um, there's a hundred percent line there, and fifty percent, fifty-seven percent of the area to the left is is filled in um, by the little bars. So the top axis is the optimal nutrient intake, which is what we talked about before is the amount of nutrients per 2,000 calories that aligns with greater satiety from whole foods. So it's set those increased safety factor nutrient targets, which are like two or three times the RDA. And then if you could get all of those from the foods you're eating, then you'd get 100%. Um, it's 
very hard to do in real life. Um, we designed it that way, but with our masterclass, we do see a number of people manage to smash that. But it's it's hard to do for a very long time because those foods are just so satiating and uh, you, you just fade away if you only ate those foods for, which is a good thing for a degree, but uh, not forever. Absolutely. Well, the other thing I want to go into nutrient-wise, like what nutrients we need is plant-based versus animal foods. Um, because I feel like at this point we're kind of going, I feel like the nutrition world is kind of going two sides, you know, plant-based animal foods. And then in the middle are the omnivores and, and then obviously the people that don't care at all about nutrition and just eat whatever they can get. But um, since this, since so many people are eating plant-based now, a lot of people are focusing more on animal foods. Uh, what are some of the nutrients to watch out for when we do go plant-based? And are there certain plant-based foods that are better than others in terms of nutrient density? And I do have another chart for that too, so I'll pull yeah, that up here. Yeah, so uh, omega-3, vitamin B12 is potentially harder to get on a plant-based diet. And if you were getting those, they're less bioavailable vitamin a is less bioavailable from a, a plant-based diet um and, and yeah so there's there are a number of nutrients but then you've got protein um which is often less bioavailable from from uh, plant-based sources basically the the forms of nutrients that come in your food that are the way your body the way they are in your body so the animal-based foods don't require that conversion from um, like the vitamin A, pro-vitamin A to um, the vitamin A in your body. Uh, so if they don't require that conversion, they're more bioavailable and easier to, to, to get. Is that is that true for all nutrients? Uh, not, not really. Um, to some degree for some, but, yeah, not, not really all nutrients, but... Uh, there are different sometimes competing nutrients and, and they compete for absorption. So if you've got, um, there are some nutrients that will decrease the absorption of certain nutrients, but if you're just eating a, you know, a purely carnivore diet that doesn't contain a lot of vitamin C or K1, you might get 100% of the nutrients that are in it. But if there's a very small amount of nutrients, 100% of nothing is still nothing. So you need to take that into account. And there's not a lot of um, educated, subtle discussion, unfortunately, on this because there's not a lot of data on the bioavailability of, of different nutrients. But there is definitely is for, for protein. And if you're on a plant-based diet, you're definitely going to struggle to get um, pro enough protein per calorie and then that protein is likely to be less bioavailable so you're going to need to you know, the, the soy proteins and tofu and and those things you're going to need to potentially focus on those sorts of foods to to bump up your uh, your protein intake and maybe consider supplementing b12 and omega-3 a lot of um a lot of vegans take B12 injections on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, that's a that's a big thing. Uh, another question I had, obviously, the bioavailability between the animal foods and the plant foods, because you know that I I remember the famous Chris Kresser, I forgot the other guy's name, Andrew Rogan, 
that that interview where they had it was like vegan against i guess ancestral mm-hmm. health in a way uh but uh that there they had a big a big fight or a big discussion over the bioavailability and you know one's had i feel like one's like the one guy had a bunch of studies and chris kresser wasn't really necessarily ready for that but that really got me questioning at that point if you know what i was reading about uh, animal foods being more bioavailable in terms of protein, if that was true. But so you're saying that is definitely the case. We um, for, for a lot of nutrients, but if those animal foods don't contain as much magnesium or potassium, then just because everything's bioavailable, it doesn't mean anything because you're not getting a lot of that nutrient from that food. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a balance. Generally, an omnivorous diet that's nutrients focused is it's definitely ideal. Yeah. And well, I have here the chart for the animal nutrient dense animal based foods, mm. and um, it does seem like there's a lot more nutrient percentage wise, a lot more nutrients. Um, yeah, definitely the, the, the nutrient dense animal based foods, it's easier to get, uh, especially obviously amino acids, protein, um, but K1s, the uh, potentially harder to get, um, vitamin A. If you're eating a whole lot of liver, is is definitely easy to get um, omega three if you're eating plenty of fish, but uh, not everybody does that. So yeah, it, it's situation specific and person specific. You can't subscribe to a dietary yeah. belief system and, and expect it to. Um, you know, different people are thriving to different extents on different dietary approaches because of, of what they're actually eating. Well, one thing with the plant-based, though, real quick to go back to that, um, it d- does say without vegetable and seeds, so those aren't even counted into these nutrient-dense plant-based foods. Uh, and I've read that, I've heard you say that a lot of you know people that go plant-based, they don't really focus on vegetables; they eat a yeah. lot of processed food. Yeah, that's that's one thing that triggered me a little bit with the whole um, <clears throat> game changes documentaries and all that that um you know they think they said the only thing that is important is you're not eating animal products and you're eating plant-based products but you know plant-based products if you're not focusing on nutrient density of vegetables is uh you know big agriculture refined foods processed foods hyperpalatal foods which is the worst thing you could do for your health so it's still plant-based but that donut can still be plant-based that uh you know that dorito can still be plant-based but it's not healthy exactly well (laughs) and and, and none of those videos are saying yeah eat more vegetables you know people who live on a whole food plant-based diet a lot of them are skinny and relatively healthy but you know just going plant-based vegan is yeah not not all that it's cracked up to be necessarily. Yeah. Well, if you're looking at it from the nutrient perspective, that's for sure. I agree that that the omnivore or nutrivore lane is much better <laughs> in that case. Um, yeah. What about seafoods? You know, that's another thing. I feel like in the, I've heard in the carnivore space, some people are like, oh, no, don't eat seafoods. We don't need them. Um, but they do have a lot of nutrients, right? Yeah, um, seafood's just incredibly nutrient-dense, selenium, magnesium, potassium, omega-3. Um, it just seems that anything grows in the ocean, especially if it's a natural environment, is going to be a, a healthier thing to eat with all the nutrients that you need. 
Have you ever looked into the Mercury side of things? Uh, yeah, the selenium that comes with the fish um, will help with the detox of the mercury. So unless you're eating shark and swordfish and as your only thing you're eating all the time, probably don't recommend eating only tuna, but if you're eating a variety of meat, fish, veggie, I don't think it's going to be a concern. Definitely yeah. the benefits yeah. outweigh the negatives. Because I, re- I read that too, the the whole idea of selenium being like a detoxifying, fa- detoxifying factor in that case. It's really interesting for people to look more into. Um, mm. So low-carb diet people, are they? is there like a general group of nutrients that they are not getting enough of? Um, personally, I'm a, I'm a fairly big proponent of a low-carb diet because, you know, nutrient-dense diets aren't really refined high-carb, but um, where you get into trouble is, is the high fat. If you just go with unlimited fat, fat doesn't cause an insulin response, fat to satiety, um, and that can be quite nutrient-poor and definitely lacking in um, particularly minerals that you get in plant-based foods, potassium, sodium, magnesium, and the like. So is that a, so? You're saying a lot of the whole foods that have a lot of fat, they don't show as much as many nutrients. Like we would uh, protein. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, uh, yeah, you'll get a bit of protein, but you get a lot of saturated fat from um, low carb animal based foods. But if it's you don't get a lot of nutrient density from the fat itself, it's a great source of energy if it comes with the protein. But you don't get a lot of nutrients from the fat itself. Got it. Okay. Where, okay, that makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That was a I was a little confused when I read that, but I get that now. Um, what, so another big one here, I think that some people are asking themselves is why seek out the foods and not just take a bunch of supplements. Yeah, um, have you ever tried to supplement your daily dose of magnesium in a, in a powder? You end up on the toilet. Yeah, I know someone. What I do this to myself. Yeah. My friend does that regularly. I don't know why, but <laughs> yeah. and and if, and if you try to take all your B vitamins from a, a pill, you'll you'll go to the toilet and you see a, your wee will be bright yellow, and um, you're just ex- making expensive wee. But um, now, when our gut isn't really designed, evolved to process powders and pills in the same way, and uh, and real food that's grown in nature in a, in a healthy regenerative environment um, has complementary nutrients that balance each other in the right ratios. And like we talked about way back at the beginning, um, a lot of those foods contain nutrients that we just don't understand yet. So all the non-essential and phytonutrients and tannins and all these other beneficial things that you're not going to get from a soilant type shake that's got all these synthetic added nutrients even the the plant-based burgers have supplemented with all these nutrients to make the label look like beef but you're not going to get all the nutrients that came from that whole food just from the synthetic supplements and you're probably not going to absorb them to the same extent so you're just taking something that's incredibly complex and nuanced and um, more than we really understand and just trying to match the label um with supplements and you, you you get all the 
breakfast cereals that have got, you know, these amazing cartoons in the front and these great labels that look phenomenal, but they're just all, none of it nutrition is coming from um, the cheap grains that it's based on. It's all just added supplements that uh, aren't going to give you the same benefit. Well, and it's pricey and they often add nasty fillers in them. And I, I, what mm. about, have you, have you looked at anything where if people eat for satiety or if people eat a lot of supplements that they still reach levels of satiety? Is that yeah, not really the case? Yeah, I haven't really seen benefits of satiety from supplements and like Cressa talks about disbenefits of calcium from supplements versus whole foods and you can overdo the supplements with vitamin D that you then get excess calcium absorption and et cetera, et cetera. So if you can, um, don't rely on supplements that's not going to necessarily save you from a, a crap diet overall. Yeah, that's that's good advice, I think. What about, though, the, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but the anti-nutrients, that's a big thing people are talking about. And uh, can you explain what those are? Oh, wow. Um, I suppose it's it's the properties in food that affect the absorption, um, like different things, uh, uh, the grains will affect the absorption of um, iron and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but at the same time, if you're avoiding all those processed refined grains, you're actually avoiding most of the anti-nutrients. And then you've got sulfurophane, which is a anti-nutrient that Rhonda Patrick loves to death and can't get enough broccoli seeds because it's helping her in a hormetic stress sort of way. So um, I think if you're focusing on nutrient-dense foods, you're going to avoid a lot of the really bad anti-nutrients while getting plenty of beneficial nutrients and overall it'll work itself out. But if you find yourself eating a certain vegetable and your gut reacts in a certain way and you're not digesting it well, then definitely don't keep eating that food. You can phase that out and try some other nutrient-dense foods. But um, I think the anti-nutrient thing might be a little bit overblown mm -hmm. by people who um, have a certain belief system. So, yeah, yeah. just... I've always wondered how much sci I've never looked into the science on that really, but you know, also do we really understand how those nutrients work in again in a whole complex food, like in a whole food, right? Does the yeah, anti-nutrient yeah, act the same? I'd I'd love to factor all these things into a complex system that could dial in nutrient density and say, you know, you need to factor down the amount of vitamin A you took because it had this anti-nutrient and affected the absorption but we just don't have that data um so we can't really base everything on it so if you're getting that like i said the safety factor of plenty of nutrients in your diet that your gut enjoys and, and you seem to digest well and you feel good eating then um, that's probably the best approach rather than trying to fear all anti-nutrients because you know you don't want to be so fragile um, that you know you've avoided this, that, and the other for so long, and as soon as you get a little whiff of it, you're um, you, you keel over, that it blows you out of the water. So you you don't want to be so fragile by avoiding everything that you think you're fearing because it's bad. That can have a negative effect as well. Absolutely, and you know I do think there are some like old, maybe lost food processing, food cooking skills. Like I had uh, Dr. Bill Schindler on to talk about yeah, that. And he, yeah, yeah, I thought he, of Bill. 
he's got a ton of uh, information on that. But I guess there's ways to soak seeds and grains to kind of destabilize those anti-nutrients. And then, you know, but we've kind of forgotten how that works, sadly. But uh, yeah, yeah. hopefully in the future here, we can get that knowledge back to the people. Yeah. I still have to look a lot more. Into, I don't. Re- I just avoid all grains mostly and seeds. Uh, I just don't do well with them. But I, I'd like to experiment more with it just so I can share it with people, you know, kind of my findings. Yeah. So. All right. So, you know, we want to eat as much nutrients as possible. I think we've driven that point home. But is there a point where, you know, too many nutrients or where there's no benefits from getting any more? Is or is there even a point where you can eat too much and it's bad for you, for us? Uh, not from whole foods. There's anecdotal reports of getting too much vitamin A if you're a starving explorer, dehydrated, and come across a polar bear and uh, eat the liver. But um, generally, the the upper limit for nutrients is based on the amount that causes issues with supplements so there's definitely upper limits of nutrients for vitamin a vitamin d and a whole bunch of other things a lot of the minerals are the amount that causes gut distress when you have them as powders but from whole foods it's hard to reach that excessive amount and uh, if you read the literature it's all about you know there's no known disbenefits from this nutrient from whole foods so typically don't need to worry about excess um, but definitely there's a point where once you get enough your body goes and search craves other nutrients so once you get enough of that nutrient let's just keep iterating and focusing on the other nutrients you need more of awesome yeah that was just something you know obviously like sodium you don't want to get too much and maybe um, uh, some of those other ones but yeah, like you said, if you're just eating those real whole, those whole real foods, that's that's the way to do it, people. Um, now, number of meals per day in meal timing. What have you found out about that in your data analysis, and does that have a factor in satiety, like in how hungry you are throughout the day? Yeah, we we did um, the same My Fitness Pal data half a million days. We looked at how much people ate on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine meals and found that they ate the less when they're eating two meals a day um when you get a one meal a day it seems that you, when you get really hungry you dive into more energy dense nutrient poor foods to enable you to eat more um so if you get too hungry you're probably going to overeat and you're probably not going to sit down to one meal that's going to contain all the protein you need across the whole day so you're a, a bodybuilder and want to get 200 grams of actual protein you're not going to be able to consume that in one meal you need to spread that across um yeah so if you're trying to lose weight then that two meals a day seems to be a nice sweet spot depending on obviously activity you may be able to if you're really active you might need three or whatever and and maybe some days one is fine but um that seems to be the sweet spot Makes me think of the six, seven meals I used to eat a day. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I would literally just time it out, you know, and just stuff myself with food because I thought that was necessary. I mean, it did help me. I don't know what if it that worked, like if that's what made me gain the muscle or just in general, you know, everything I was doing. But yeah, if, if, you try, if you're trying to eat more to grow, then more meals is going to be better. What about... Appetite, uh, appetite's a pretty good trigger. Yeah. 
What about like eating certain foods in the morning and certain foods at night, like macro nutrient? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, front loading your protein is, is a good play. So if you try to make sure you get for the first meal, whether that be at eight o'clock or midday or two o'clock, whenever you eat your first meal, try to front load the protein in the morning and then top up with energy from carbs and or fats later on in the day. And carbs seem to help with sleep a little bit and but don't leave it too late to eat and have your main meal right before you go to bed yeah that's because that's something i've been hearing people talk about in the low carb space kind of keep those carbs for later in the day and then the big protein breakfast in the morning yeah cool well i want to get a tiny bit into uh, fasting but first if we want to eat nutrient dense like this what are some steps that people can take to start doing it Whenever, you know. Yeah, yeah. Or as um, soon so as possible, I guess. The, the first step that you sort of talked about earlier is looking at your label and seeing does it contain refined seed oils combined with um, sugars and refined starches, uh, refined grains with colors and flavors. And that's the thing you want to decrease and then look for foods to contain um, you know, more natural color, more natural flavor that actually contain the nutrients um, and a percentage of protein. So that involves like meat, fish, veggies, basically is what it comes down to simply if you want to increase your nutrient density. And um, if you want to dive down further, you can then start tracking and looking at what particular meat, fish and veggies will give you the, the nutrients you need without too much energy. And you can keep on following down the rabbit hole and having a lot of fun uh, funky to see how many people nerd out and get really stimulated by competing for maximum nutrient density score in the master classes we run yeah i think everyone should definitely go read your blog take the test use the tool uh, make sure to eat whole foods and avoid those ultra processed foods so fasting this is one uh that your book really got me thinking about yeah um, because you know i used to always think um, you know, you got to fast as much as possible during the week, 16 hours at least. It's going to give me the most benefit. Uh, what are some of the things you've found about fasting in your research? Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I tried fasting for days on end and one day did seven days, one time did seven days. And when fasting was growing as a, as a thing, um, I suppose personally, I find that once you fast for a while, you the cream and the peanut butter and the yogurt and whatever else starts to look really, really sexy and <laughs> you, you excuse yourself and you justify it and go, yeah, I really deserve that. And your lizard brain's just like, go and just eat the whole whole tub of peanut butter, dude, and, and whatever else you can eat because you deserve it. Um, basically, your appetite kicks in and you make poorer food choices. Um, at that point, you just... You, you, your conscious thought of going to eat well and I'm going to you know choose wisely. You just it's all out the window and it's a free for all most of the time. At least that was my experience, and I think a lot of people um, we've seen in playing around with different nutrition areas um, they fast for a while and then they regain the weight and they fast again. I think they're getting this massive benefit from the two or three days of autophagy, but because some. Um, Mouse study found that 48 hours of fasting in a mouse 
gives you autophagy, but me- meaning one, that one, autophagy meaning that your body starts rebuilding itself again, cleaning up those yeah. damaged cells and and all that. Yeah, and, and, and ke- ketosis uh, aligns with energy deficit, which aligns with increased NAD and mitochondrial biogenesis and increased sirtuins and all these amazing things that happen when you manage to get into an energy deficit. Your body with autophagy cleans house and gets rid of all the old dead proteins and and you're fresh and ready to to eat again and 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 build muscle and so it's a good thing but you know one day for a mouse is 40 human days so two day 48 hour fast is 80 days and you've got angus burberry who fasted for 282 days 382 but you've got the 1981 hunger strike where 20 men died between 27 and um 71 days from not heating and you know it gets to a point where it's dangerous and what you really need rather than going how long can i fasting and stint and then binge and whatever i want it's how do i eat fast and feast in a sustainable manner that leads me to an optimal body composition that'll lead to optimal metabolic health which goes back so it's a matter of balancing that that feasting and fasting in a sensible way that achieves a long-term energy deficit i mean people talk about the magic of fasting and energy balance and calorie deficit calories are all garbage but you know energy balance is a thing and um as a bodybuilder you know it's a thing but you know it's hard to track calories for most people who aren't planning the whole meal for the whole week in Tupperware containers. So that's the reality is it calories are really hard to track in the real world. And, and our lizard brain always overrides our, when we outsource our satiety to a smartphone app, um, it never really ends well and we lose track of our own hung, hunger signals. What about, so from what I'm getting from you, it kind of is that the, the longer fasts are still, there's still questions about that. But what about the like 16 hour intermittent fasts? Yeah, um, I I personally probably do sixteen eight, um, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially if you're trying to achieve an energy deficit, and that's probably a good way as long as you can get the um, protein and nutrients you need when you eat. So that, that's the critical thing: is not pushing it so long that you, your food choices degrade and you're not eating well when you do eat. So that's kind of that refeed window that I yeah, read and- about. Yeah, if your refeed window is um, degrading, if you're uh, dreaming of peanut butter, then uh, try to back it off a little bit. And then you want that refeed to have a lot of protein, right? You, I think yeah. that's what you said in your book. Regardless of whether you're you know, eating all day or, or fasting for seven days, somehow across that week you need to get enough protein and nutrients. Fasting doesn't negate the need for nutrients so you need to find that balance to fasting and feasting while you can still get the nutrients so nutrient density becomes even more important when you're fasting and losing weight yeah i need to start thinking about that usually when i fast i feel like i have superpowers you know but i gotta i gotta think about it in terms of the nutrients more yeah and definitely after a few days of fasting you get this you know elevated ketones and you feel euphoric and feel amazing and that's great that's a whole lot of fun in some ways and it's good to know you don't have to eat all the time but um yeah you need to find the balance over the long term of fasting and refeeding appropriately and like an adult yeah absolutely well one of the biggest things i think i like about this whole 
eating for nutrient density is that the, the factor that you don't need to track so much, you know, don't need to keep a bunch <clears> of <throat> data. I mean, I do think people should use the tool because, you know, that gives you actual information about the food, but uh, it's not like you need to be calculating out a bunch of, a bunch of things all the time. Yeah. Well, Marty, I mean, I think we went through all my questions um, and you did <laughs> great. Great questions, by the way. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, hey, this is, like I said, I've been, when I found your work, I like immediately was like, I would love to talk to to him because you're a wealth of knowledge. And I think the work you're doing is amazing. Like, please Thank keep you. that up. I th just <laughs> think it's super, it's like, you know, almost, I'm just, I feel like the whole food, ancestral food, seeing the those people like everyone who's in it they start to understand food and all the on this like on these different dimensions and it's almost like stepping out of the matrix right in a way and i think once you understand nutrient density you can really like look at it with this bird's eye view i love it and sure. I, I also think you're doing a great job in kind of bridging that gap between you know different sides of the dietary spectrum you know we, it seems like in every aspect of the world right now we're just kind of splitting up into different sides and, and even in the nutrition world politically you know so yeah, it's insane. you gotta bring bring people together and i i think so you know i eat mostly animal foods but i definitely like i love my veggies and mm. I, i'm like i said at the beginning i'm gonna focus now on real simple foods and those with the most nutrients so mm. i think that's the Great way to advice. do it absolutely so what does the future hold for you? Yeah, well, um, it, it's just a, a really fun hobby at the moment that just keeps on expanding and more people get interested in it. So it's um, really cool to, to see it growing. And, and uh, my vision is that nutritional optimization becomes a, a, a movement, you know, the next, you know, next fad, hopefully, which will the fad to end all fads. But, um, yeah, I say, you know, yeah, your diet doesn't need a name or a belief system. It just needs enough nutrients. So that seems to catch on with people and they go, yeah, I don't need to call myself this or the other. I just need to make sure the food contains nutrition without excess calories. So been playing with data-driven fasting, which has um, spawned off nutrient optimizer and just trying to teach people to find that balance between uh, fasting and feasting with their glucose numbers and that's just a really nice guide to help them down gently and then we've got another nutritional optimization masterclass coming up in a few weeks which is uh, super cool and that's where people dive into all the nerdy detail and track their food and try to optimize it but then walk away with you know here's the 30 foods and 30 meals that i love eating that align with my goals and i can forget all that tracking and just enjoy my food so um, lots of cool projects in the pipeline and, uh, hey, great to, great to be able to chat to you today, man. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, really, it's an honor for you to come on, honestly. And, uh, where can people find you? I mean, you have your blog, you're in social yep. media and I'll have everything in the show notes, but you just want to yeah. plug your, your sites quick. Yeah. If they want to check out, um, optimizingnutrition.com, which is the blog with the, the massive, thought dumps as an engineer to sort of to prove to people that hey this is what i'm thinking what do you guys reckon um there's the nutrient optimizer app um nutrientoptimizer.com they can do that that survey and check out what um 
nutrients they're missing in their diet. We've got data-driven fasting, so datadrivenfasting.com. We've just launched a little app that's automated that. That's really cool. And then um, search for those things on Facebook. You'll find it. And, uh, yeah, love love people to, to check it out and uh, join the tribe. Absolutely. And you've been on other podcasts. You have great lectures on YouTube. So check those out, people. Learn as much as you can about this. Awesome. Well, this this has been a fun one. I can't wait to share it. Awesome. Really diving deep. Thank you. Good. Sweet. Bye-bye, Dan. (laughs) Thanks, man. Thanks. All right. That's all I have for you guys today. I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode and were able to learn as much from Marty Kendall as I was. I have a lot more awesome interviews planned and a lot already in the pipeline just waiting to be released. So stay tuned for those. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, don't forget about the awesome giveaway we're doing. If you want a chance to win a $100 hand-forged Damascus steel cleaver, this is your chance Just send me a message, again, on social media. If you want to send me a message on Instagram, my handle is at poldiwieland, P-O-L-D-I-W-I-E-L-A-N-D. Otherwise, Twitter works too. There the handle is at the year of plenty. Or, you know, if you don't have social media, I'm more than glad to receive your message on email. So just send an email to theyearofplenty at gmail.com. Thank you so much for your support. Let's keep exploring real foods together.